Hey, thanks for choosing Brainwaves. After the episode, take a look at our iTunes archive for other great content, and check out our new website at brainwaves.me. Now, on to the show. Lately, I've been rotating at the Children's Hospital, and I was asked to comment on an 18-month-old ex-full-term developmentally normal boy with a left lateral rectus weakness that was noted over the past week. Over the phone at the time, I was thinking this could be a left abducens palsy. And if you tried to localize this lesion, as you heard from Dr. Hamadani's interview a few months ago, you could presume the lateral rectus weakness could originate from any lesion from the lower pons or pontomedullary junction, all the way to the insertion of the lateral rectus muscle on the globe. After obtaining more history on the phone, there was no other reported weakness, especially involving the face, which makes a pontine or pontomedullary lesion highly unlikely given the co-localization of the facial nerve fascicle as it courses around the abducens nucleus. Similarly, a lesion of the sixth nerve fascicle could involve the descending corticospinal tracts, producing a contralateral hemiparesis, or the Raymond syndrome. However, there were no other signs of brainstem or corticospinal tract dysfunction, and the baby continued to feed well and gain weight. At the level of the sixth nerve root as it exits the pons near the brainstem, it is vulnerable to injury. Trauma is the most common cause of an isolated sixth nerve palsy in children, accounting for maybe a third of all pediatric cases. Compression from masses or elevated intracranial pressure could also affect the sixth nerve, but there was no reported papilledema to corroborate this, and he was not irritable, lethargic, or nauseated as you might expect in an infant with intracranial hypertension. Importantly, he was not macrocephalic, nor was he born with this abnormality, which excludes the possibility of intracranial hypertension, a congenital strabismus, for instance, Duane's or Mobius syndromes, or other structural abnormality from birth, such as a perinatal brainstem infarct or hemorrhage. And it also makes genetic causes of extraocular muscle weakness less likely. Things like many of the congenital myasthenic syndromes might otherwise have been higher on your differential, but these present with more impressive ophthalmoparesis and ptosis. The fact that his left lateral rectus weakness was not progressive or associated with systemic features suggests that inflammatory neuropathies like Miller-Fisher syndrome might not be the cause of his diplopia either. A normal orbital appearance or lack of proptosis makes infiltrative cavernous sinus processes like tumors and thyroid eye disease less likely, but lack of proptosis is not perfectly sensitive for these conditions. So, all these things considered, I felt that the neuromuscular junction disorders, trauma, and finally idiopathic abducens palsy were most likely for our young boy. An MRI was told to me to be normal, lumbar puncture with opening pressure was also unrevealing, and acetylcholine receptor antibodies were sent. Antibodies to the postsynaptic nicotinic acetylcholine receptor were first described by Patrick and Lindstrom in 1973. The pathogenic mechanism for these antibodies in myasthenia gravis is intuitive. These antibodies are thought to affect conformational changes of the ACH receptor, prohibiting ACH binding, but eventually inducing cross-linking of neighboring ACH receptors and ultimately complement-mediated degradation. Although their presence of these antibodies is specific for myasthenia gravis, and the inactivation or removal of antibodies with IVIG or plasmapheresis facilitates resolution of symptomatic worsening, the concentration of antibodies does not actually correlate with disease severity. That being said, I've heard some providers will trend antibody concentrations over time as a surrogate measure of response to immunomodulatory therapies, but I don't usually do this. 
Recognizing that only 80% of patients with myasthenia gravis had antibodies to the ACH receptor, the quest into the molecular mechanism of the remaining 20% of seronegative patients began. Finally, in 2001, antibodies to muscle-specific kinase, or MUSK, were identified. And it was not a small proportion of seronegative patients who had anti-MUSK antibodies, like we see in other autoimmune neurologic diseases. For example, aquaporin-4 IgG antibodies are observed in 80% of NMO-spectrum cases. But a second antibody was discovered to account for this disease process, an antibody to myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein. Unlike the way anti-musk antibodies are identified in 40-50% to 50% of seronegative myasthenia, anti-MOG antibodies are detected in a mere 10-20% to 20% of seronegative NMO. From a mechanistic point of view, I don't think any neurologist expected to know how muscle-specific kinase works, and at least I didn't know until preparing for this episode. But on the most basic level, musk binds agarin at the postsynaptic junction, thereby facilitating the clustering of transmembrane ACH receptors so that they may appropriately respond to acetylcholine. Unlike anti-ACH antibody myasthenia, which can occur in pediatric as well as adult patients, anti-musk myasthenia is largely a disease of middle-aged adults and rarely involves the ocular muscles. Anti-musk myasthenia frequently presents with bulbar findings in 40% of patients and rarely manifests with generalized weakness. Musk and ACH receptor antibodies almost never coexist in the same patient, so I wouldn't recommend testing for other antibodies once a patient has had a single positive serology. While anti-musk antibodies account for 4% of all cases of myasthenia gravis, antibodies to lipoprotein-related protein 4, or LRP4, are found in fewer than a quarter of myasthenics who test negative for both ACH and musk antibodies. This is on the order of 1-2% of all cases of myasthenia gravis, so LRP4 testing should not be the first antibody that comes to your mind. Also, LRP4 antibody testing is not commercially available, so you can't order it anyway. Anti-LRP4 myasthenia represents a slightly different phenotype than anti-musk myasthenia, which usually manifests with bulbar and respiratory dysfunction. LRP4 myasthenic patients present with ocular or generalized weakness, and these patients almost never develop respiratory distress. After testing for antibodies against the ACH receptor to muscle-specific kinase and to LRP4, once they return negative, we are left with about 5% of patients who are true quote-unquote seronegative myasthenia gravis, and 4% of the patients will have Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, or LEMS. It's important to recognize that most patients with ocular myasthenia will develop generalized myasthenia within the first year of symptoms, and if weakness does not generalize by two years, there's a 90% chance that your patient will have only ocular motor manifestations of the disease. In considering a serologic test for your patients with presumed myasthenia, you could consider the pretest probability of each test according to presenting symptoms. Patients who present with ptosis or diplopia and no generalized weakness or fatigability should be tested for ACH receptor antibodies, and these will be positive in 50% of cases. Anti-musk antibodies are rarely observed in cases of ocular myasthenia, In patients with progressive respiratory distress and generalized weakness, antibodies to the ACH receptor should be your first step, followed by anti-musk antibody testing if ACH receptors are negative. Honestly, most academic clinicians usually start by just sending for ACH receptor antibodies, and if these are negative, they would consider anti-musk antibodies for select cases. Usually, the neurologist will rely on the single-fiber EMG of the facial and appendicular muscles for the final diagnosis. Now let's get back to our patient at the beginning of the episode. Remember the 18-month-old boy with one week of lateral rectus weakness. Our next step in the diagnostic battery was acetylcholine receptor antibody testing. 
It turns out the antibodies returned positive, and he was referred to a neuro-ophthalmologist for acetylcholinesterase and or immunomodulatory therapies. So, case closed. Had the antibodies been negative, you might consider performing an EMG on this patient with single-fiber testing to confirm neuromuscular junction disease, but this is incredibly difficult in an infant because it's painful. Alternatively, a watchful waiting approach could be considered with alternative days of eye patching to prevent amblyopia, since many of these kids will have an idiopathic sixth nerve palsy that will spontaneously recover over the following weeks. Now I know what you're thinking. What's, What's all this thymoma business? Isn't myasthenia gravis a perineoplastic syndrome? Well, let's take a step back. First of all, myasthenia is not the only perineoplastic syndrome associated with thymomas and only 10% of adult myasthenia gravis presents with a thymoma, compared to 50% of patients with limbs who have an underlying small cell lung cancer. Thymomas, despite what you've been told in medical school, have also been associated with limbs as well as the voltage-gated potassium channel encephalitides of Isaacs and Morvan syndromes, as well as acquired neuromyotonia, limbic encephalitis, autonomic neuropathy, cerebellar degeneration, and even variants of the stiff person syndrome but these are far less common than the association of thymoma with anti-ACH receptor myasthenia gravis. That's it for this episode of Brainwaves. I'd like to thank Dr. Grant Liu of the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for reviewing the content of this episode and the case presentation. I'm Jim Siegler, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on the web at brainwaves.me or find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. Feel free to contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Marcos H. Bolanos. I'm Erica Mejia. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves. Brainwaves.